The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. Um, you will undoubtedly be familiar with how significant our housing price, our crisis is, and how long established our housing crisis is. Well, there may be some good news, at least according to uh, our next guest. There may be some good news because Connor Skeen is the former chair of the housing agency, columnist with the Sunday Independent. He joins me on the show now, and Connor, it is your view that if we are not ready to yet put out bunting, there is at least some light at the end of the tunnel. Well, I'd be even more cautious, say, I'd say if the government's quarterly report is to be believed. So one has to be very careful with everything to do with housing. Such an emotional issue, so complex to figure out when is a house finished, when is it built, when is it available. So let's treat all the figures with a, with a pinch of salt. The only thing that seems to be certain is they're going in the right direction. And the right direction is they're getting back up to the kinds of levels of house finishing, building completions, whatever you want, you want to call it, that they used to be before we had the awful housing crisis. If those figures are to be believed... And if they say on the current track, how long before the awful crisis begins to abate, in your view? In my view, uh, there is never a time that doesn't have a housing crisis. It just has a different name. So uh, right back to the time I was in the housing agency, I said a day would come when we'd have enough houses being built every year. But we just have another problem then, which we have now, which is they're not affordable. So having enough houses that aren't affordable is just as bad as not having enough houses. So the problem keeps moving on and it'll move on from that to saying that they may be affordable and they may be available, but they're in the wrong place. That'll be the next one, which has to do with transportation and sustainable mobility. And sir, are you saying that that is one of, that is an issue of perception or an issue of reality? That there is always some insoluble problem or that people think there's a problem when they should be happy with the situation? Uh, No, I I, I wouldn't say that people should be happy with anything, but housing is something that is persistently characterised as being what is technically called a wicked problem. It's like the Genja. You know those things where you pull out one block and the other one becomes unstable. So housing is like that. You fix one thing and all you've done is push something else out at the other end. And uh, so if, for instance, you made houses more affordable, the headlines would say, the value of everybody's houses has fallen and I've been putting aside my mortgage every year for the last 30 years and suddenly it's not worth what it used to be. So you can't win. You can never win with housing. To some extent, do you, in your period in the housing agency, bear any culpability for failure to prepare sufficiently or to prepare the policy platform sufficiently for the current crisis? On the contrary, <laughs> um, I got myself in a lot of trouble and I still am unpopular for having said at the time that the real issues were affordability and vacancy. I couldn't get a hearing for it. And so, yes, I am culpable for not having shouted long, loudly enough or banged the table enough. Uh, I had also said that we needed to deal with the issues, not just of how many houses there are, but how they are used. There's a very peculiar thing in housing, which is that the occupancy levels have been falling for a long time. So the number of people per house is actually one of the things that determines how how many houses you need and you could do all kinds of clever initiatives to encourage people to stay with their families longer. There's 300,000 people, Anton, who live on their own in Ireland. 300,000 people and most of them live in houses they own. Imagine if we had incentives for those people to have somebody living with them. Imagine how many houses that would be. Does that mean that to some extent you feel a a bit like Cassandra, that you you were sounding the warning about this and not being listened to? I used to write and that used to be my pen name. The other thing that you have said in in your recent uh, article in relation to this is that the homelessness figures, now I'm paraphrasing, so correct me if if I do you an injustice, but that the homeless figures are inaccurate and to some extent encouraged into inaccuracy by government policy. I asked a question, which is that when um, the wonderful Alan Kelly, he was an amazing energetic minister, but like, you know, he did what he did and uh, he made a, what was called a directive saying that anybody who was on the homelessness or homeless 
who was homeless or who was vulnerable would go to the top of the housing waiting list. When he did it, we had a thousand and something people who were registered as being an emergency accommodation. It had trebled within months of him making that announcement and never stopped rising after that. So that's an indication. And sorry, when that happened, Dublin City Council immediately leapt up and said exactly what you just said there. You're going to create what economists call a perverse incentive. And a perverse incentive is that people do things for very rational reasons, but they have they have outcomes that aren't the best. And uh, that means that, for instance, the thing I was saying to you earlier is if we could examine things like occupancy of houses, what could we do to incentivise houses to, to stay together for longer? Those people who suddenly appear on the emergency list came from somewhere. They didn't drop out of the sky. And by going further up the, the homeless tree, you find out why did they move, where did they come from and what could have been done to make them stay but just, just even three months longer. Help me wrap my head around that. So hmm. what, what you're saying is that Alan Kelly said, OK, anybody who is homeless moves to the top of the list. And that people who were not homeless characterised themselves as such? Dublin City Council said that they foresaw that that would happen. And is it your view that they foresaw it correctly, that that is what has happened? I'm just saying the statistics bear out the prediction that was made by Dublin City Council as it went from the low thousands to being whatever it is this month. It's never stopped rising ever since that moment. Well, let me put it to you then. Is, is Is the corollary that if that policy were changed... Would you expect to see a, a reduction in uh, a similarly um, significant reduction in the homelessness numbers? Well, again, uh, at the risk of making oneself popular, to be very careful, to, and I'm being very careful in my language, to sort out the difference between somebody who is homeless and somebody who's in emergency accommodation. The number of people who are homeless, what we call rough sleepers or unsheltered sleepers, has kind of stayed without any change for 30 years now of between 90 and 110. Roughly, they count them sometimes twice a year. It's never changed. Never, ever, ever changed. And that's because that's uh, usually to do with things, people who've got personal issues to do with addiction or personality issues, things like that. Uh, And uh, that's not homeless. Uh, So homelessness has become captured uh, into the word emergency accommodation. It's very different and a highly emotional issue, Anton. And when you put the word homeless on it, everybody's heart bursts. Nobody wants to ever hear of anybody being homeless. But go to the, the, the crux of the question. Mm. If the policy were changed to say that people who are within, to use the terminology, emergency accommodation, do not move to the top of the list, is it your belief that you would see those numbers correct back to a reality that is now false? My personal view is that that is an impossible ask and I think would be political suicide. I think a better thing to do is to go to the other side, end of the pipe, as I was calling it, the demand side, to see what could you could do to get people to stay in larger uh, family units for longer. Only an extra six months. What could you do to intervene there? It's very like vacancy. When I was trying to encourage people in the housing agency to deal with vacancy, it was discovered that in Britain they've got these people called um, uh, vacancy officers. And the vacancy officers have identified there's no one solution to vacancy. It's usually one, sorry, it's usually three to four different factors from a pick list of 12 of them. And you have to fix three or four of them and you could just get it to move very, very slowly down over a very long period of time. And I suspect emergency accommodation would fall into the same category. But is, is to some extent your suggested solution to aspects of the problem not what other people see as a manifestation of the problem? Whenever you talk about people who are struggling to get accommodation, mm-hmm. you hear, I'm stuck with yeah. my family, yeah. I'm a grown adult. I exactly. should be able to. It seems that your answer to that is to say, well, spend a little longer with your family. Well, exactly. And you have to, to be really careful having these things, because as I said earlier, 
whole, everything to do with housing is incredibly emotional and to sort of take your uh, conversation to its logical conclusion you could be accused of victim shaming for instance of taking somebody who can't for all kinds of reasons some of which would be terrible continue to live with their own family for a moment longer for a second longer you do not want to do anything to cause that person to feel in any way stigmatised for choosing to make their own house so that's that will always be true. But there are other situations where something blends from that extreme end to something that's nice to have rather than need to have. It's unnatural to be 25 years of age and uh, maybe having your own first kid on the way to not want to have your own home. That's, but it, there's a spectrum that goes all the way from the horrors of somebody who has to leave home to somebody who'd like to do it a bit sooner. Go back then to your um, pen name, that thing of being Cassandra, Cassandra and yeah. having the warnings that aren't heralded. If you put yourself in that position now, if, if as you now see it, mm. with the caveats that you put around the numbers, mm. that the numbers may be improving, if that is the case, what is the next concern? So if this track of, of, of production of homes stays the way that it is and in three or four years the problem is alleviated to a great degree, What's the next crisis? The next crisis is already uh, simmering on the horizon. I do not have the up-to-date figures, but the number of people who are in emergency accommodation who are offered housing, who are refusing it because it isn't in the place they want, is an indication of the next tier. So it's not that we don't have the housing, it's not where people either want to have it or need to have it. Again, a perfectly legitimate point of view to have, but it's a different type of crisis. You could arguably say compared to somebody who's on a bus on their way to us from the Ukraine at the moment, it's a first world problem to have. Just to have any kind of a roof over your head is a good thing. And that's the other thing. We have to be in wonder at the number of people we have. I believe it's approaching 70,000 people. Like, that's a good-sized Irish county that we've suddenly had dropped among us uh, in the last, say, 24 months, and we're dealing with that. We're an amazing country that we've managed to do that, while also trying to deal with things like uh, our own homeless problems, our own emergency accommodation problems, and our own house pricing problems. So if we get to the improvement in affordability, we get the improvement of availability, and then there is that question that you raise of where the housing is. Is the policy response that's needed to that is, is it one of focusing on where employment is and trying to make sure that people are drawn to where the housing is provided or is it that you build houses in different areas than we currently are? Well, there's two things uh, in that statement. That's a very complicated question. The first is that um, it does, we, we keep having to remind ourselves that governments don't build houses. They only build about 10% of all housing. The rest of it's built by the market, for the market. And uh, however awful I mean, I think some builders are, the reality is they're very smart. People won't smart the market very, very well and they won't build unless they know there's going to be a market. So they tend to follow it. So to your question about jobs, the job, the location of jobs, the types of jobs in Ireland are changing dramatically and people are moving to follow jobs. Um, I wrote an article a while ago about, for instance, the fact that pharma, pharmaceutical industries are mostly in the West of Ireland. People are amazed to discover that. So lots and lots of people are making very smart decisions about moving closer to that. Now, when I say that, I have on occasions been beaten up uh, on the, in these studios for saying people should move to where the work is, like you do in places like the United States or Europe. Um, it's not meant to sound heartless. It's just a normal recognition that people who are smart follow the jobs. And... Uh, That is definitely happening, but it's more complex because working from home has changed that now. People won't tolerate a huge long drive five mornings a week, but a lot of people will do it one morning a week. But there's a fine case in point. The Hmm. the pharma and med tech industrial um, investment was largely west of the Shannon by virtue of government policy. It was a choice. Absolutely, definitely, categorically not. I work in that industry. That's what I do for a living. I'm the person who helps get planning permission and gets permits for those things. They go there because they have... uh, 
a, what they call a pool of labour of people with similar skills. They love being beside each other so you get people moving around each other. So Cork Harbour almost has too many farmers in the area now because they're all dipping into the same pool. And then when you go up the west coast there are pools of it. It's like a necklace of these opportunities. All so Ringeskiddy, Dundero, none of that was a function of government policy? No, they are where they are because they have the labour force, they have less competition for wages, they have, like believe it or not, a lot of the pharma have huge overlaps with the agricultural and brewing sector because the people who build and maintain them need to be experts in things like stainless steel, in uh, what do we call it, low infection environments, in double uh, containment, uh, things like stainless steel welding, of double, double, double piping and things like that. So there's a lot of synergies go on. I say, I do it every, say, every single day of the week. That's where they go. Once they go there, there are certainly generous grants and incentives available, but they go there of preference and they've, they've done but it sorry, for you're saying chicken years. and egg you're saying they would go there without the grants and, no, and public no, incentive no, no no they when they go there the, the real issue in Ireland is there used to be a joke once about I think it was carpets or something you come for the prices and you stay for the value uh, people come to Ireland uh, attracted initially from abroad by things like tax incentives they stay here for productivity they get the highest productivity in the world of their FDI investments so they come to Ireland Ireland has an amazing workforce full of people who are good at what they do and they stay here for that well, we will uh, follow this, obviously, with some optimism, if you're right about the way the numbers are going. Uh, thank you very much for uh, joining us. That is, of course, Connor Skeen, former chair of the Housing Agency. And if you want to read the detail of Connor's piece, it is uh, online on independent.ie from this weekend's Sunday Independent. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy. With Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk.